This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt University. Today, the topic that I want to talk about is uh, issues of blood component therapy. It's been my observation working with residents and fellows that we order a lot of blood, and a lot of times our indications for why we're ordering the blood uh, are, are very soft at that. I've done a previous podcast addressing what are the, the hemoglobin thresholds or triggers or whether we should even have uh, a set trigger point for transfusion of blood. But then when I see how people will go about and order various blood or blood products, it really indicates that we don't have a really strong uh, understanding of when we would use a unit of blood or when it's more appropriate to use FFP versus platelets versus something like cryoprecipitate. And that's going to be the topic of today's discussion. The first issue we're going to talk about is just going over what are the various types of blood products that we use. The first is whole blood. Whole blood really doesn't get used much uh, nowadays in a, in a civilian practice, but certainly uh, uh, in the military setting, uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of reports, particularly at that meetings, of how the military is using whole bloods and, and having results they're very satisfied with. Basically, a uh, unit of um, donated blood, um, which is roughly about 520 milliliters, contains both a unit of plasma and a unit of cells. Whole blood can be stored for about five weeks, Factors 5 and factor 7 are labile and are significantly decreased after 7 days. The indications for whole blood, particularly if used fresh, is in resuscitation of the exsanguinating patient. It's not really indicated uh, currently uh, in uh, most civilian settings for, quote, the routine transfusion of uh, blood, particularly when we can use packed red blood cells. And that's pretty straightforward because we could take a unit of donated blood and we could break it down to a unit of red cells, a unit of platelets, a unit of FFP, and that way by doing component therapy where we have the ability to to help perhaps three people and one person who's in need of cells, one person who's in need of factor um, in the form of plasma and another person who may need uh, platelets. The setting that we're seeing this used a lot in military settings and, and now in the state side and some trauma settings for massive resuscitation is that a patient who is, is receiving large amounts of blood in a massive transfusion protocol uh, it typically needs not only just packed red blood cells but uh, coagulation factors in the form of plasma and platelets. And in some settings they're doing what's called one-to-one-to-one component therapy where in a trauma patient who is rapidly exsanguinating, they're giving it a unit of blood with a unit of platelets with a unit of FFP. Uh, what the military has learned is by, by, by using whole blood or the one-to-one-to-one therapy, that they're able to uh, basically uh, prevent problems with coagulopathy that we see in massive transfusions. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The next uh, uh, blood product is uh, packed red blood cells. And uh, packed red blood cells, or uh, PRBCs, um, is what is left of the red cell mass after the plasma is removed. Typically, this has a hematocrit between 70 and 80. And the volume of uh, a unit of packed red blood cells is roughly 340 cc's. In an average adult, uh, administering one unit of packed red blood cells will increase the hematocrit by 3% or the hemoglobin by 1 gram per deciliter. Typically, the indications for packed red blood cells, as I've said, that could be a, a topic in and by itself. We have talked in the past and in a previous podcast about um, um, thresholds 
for um, transfusion of blood. People a lot of times will have arbitrary transfusion thresholds, and, and the literature clearly shows that that's not appropriate. As a general rule, packed red blood cells are indicated for patients who are anemic and have reversible anemias. I'm sorry, uh, for people who have reversible anemias, we should not be uh, giving, we should not be giving packed red blood cells if we have somebody who has an iron deficiency anemia, unless they're uh, symptomatic. And w- what does symptomatic mean? Well, you know, in some circles, people would say that symptomatic means they're short of breath and having chest pain. That even a, a simple tachycardia uh, is not symptomatic. And, and I don't know that I would agree with that wholeheartedly, particularly when we look at the interaction with a patient's heart rate and, and with myocardial oxygen consumption, somebody who maybe have cardiovascular disease. But we need to keep in mind that we don't transfuse, it, we don't transfuse people based on a number. We treat physiology. Young, healthy um, uh, trauma patients particularly can tolerate very low hematocrits uh, down into the 20s, and, and they maintain this by increasing their cardiac output, and by doing so, they're able to maintain uh, oxygen delivery. There's no scientific evidence that topping somebody off to a hematocrit of 30 will improve survival or wound healing in surgical patients. We have to keep in mind that when we transfuse blood, the blood that we're giving is not normal. Um, bank blood is not the same. It does not have the same physiological properties as a patient's native blood. Uh, the example that I would use in this is comparing somebody driving a brand new Corvette to somebody who's driving a 72 Pinto. Bank blood is physiologically different. It has a lower pH. It has less 2,3-DPG. Remember from uh, your biochemistry days that 2,3-DPG is required to result in adequate offloading of oxygen in in the periphery. The surgical residents, every January we give the surgery residents an in-service exam where they're asked about various elements that result in shifts of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. A move of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the left is bad, and a move to the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve to the right is good. And what are some of the things that result in a left shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? Things such as lower temperature, decrease in 2,3-DPG, and actually a decrease of hydrogen ion concentration. That's right, alkalosis actually will cause that to shift to the left. And as the shift, that curve shifts to the left, when the uh, red blood cell gets to the periphery, it doesn't offload the oxygen as well. Other elements uh, of uh, bank blood that make it as less physiological is the red cells are not as pliable. Uh, and keep in mind that as red blood cells have to go through those end capillaries where oxygen exchange actually occurs, the red blood cells have to flex in order to get down that small, narrow capillary. Bank blood is more rigid, it's more difficult for the blood to get through those end capillaries, and therefore, even though you may have mathematically improved the oxygen carrying capacity, and maybe even mathematically improved the oxygen delivery uh, of blood, the actual blood moving through the capillary could be decreased, because now we're trying to push molasses through it by having this thick, rigid red blood cell. And this is something called hemorrheology, and that's something way beyond what we're going to talk about tonight. The other element of a blood component therapy is platelets. One platelet concentrate or one unit of random donor platelets is derived from one unit of donor blood. Uh, single donor platelet phoresis can be used to harvest platelets. One unit of single donor phoresis uh, platelets is equivalent to about five to six platelet concentrates. Now, one platelet concentrate can raise the platelet count by five to seven thousand. Typically, when platelets are 
uh, stored. They're considered to be stunned. And it takes about four hours for transfused patients to be fully functional in the circulation. So again, keeping in mind that if somebody has a need for platelets uh, and you're giving them at noon, those platelets, though they will be administered, they're not going to be really functional uh, or fully functional, I should say, to about four hours after administration because of this stunning of the platelets. The other thing to keep in mind is that platelets are packed in FFP. And I remember a professor of mine was a fellow said if you have a, a patient who has a coagulopathy, often platelets is perhaps um, a good thing to give because not only are you giving platelets, but you're also giving plasma. And often we forget the fact that we need to give people a functional platelets. A pool of five platelet concentrates contains enough uh, plasma to have an equivalent unit of FFP. Therefore, you've got all coagulation factors except labile 5 and factor 8. Now, there's something called human leukocyte antigen or HLA matched platelets, and these are from a single donor phoresis unit that are from an HLA matched donor. Basically, we're, we're matching, uh, uh, just like we would uh, cross-match uh, blood, we're now uh, matching platelets. Now, we should only administer or order this product if there's evidence of HLA antibodies. Now, remember always to check what's called a platelet count 15 minutes after platelet infusion. So this 15-minute platelet count. Let's reiterate what that is. If we start hanging platelets at noon, we should be rechecking a platelet count at about 12.15. And if we have a poor 15-minute uh, count, this may be indicative of HLA antibodies, meaning that the patient's body is mounting uh, a... Um, humoral immediate response against the infused platelets. A good 15-minute count, but a poor 24-hour count is more suggestive of consumption, such as fever, sepsis, drugs, and so forth, and not indicative of an HLA matched platelet problem. So when do we administer platelets? Well, there's no scientific basis for the old 20,000 um, count, uh, platelet count cutoff. And this is actually something uh, that I've actually given some of my residents a hard time in, in the past and in the pretty recent past. But um, no scientific evidence for that. Risk of severe bleeding rises only when the count is below five to 10,000. Now, risk of intracranial hemorrhage is present only when the count is below 1,000. And then actual risk is roughly, if you have somebody sitting with a platelet count of 1,000, the risk of an intracranial hemorrhage is about 0.76% a day. Gemers in the Lancet 1991 demonstrated the rate of major bleeding at 0.07% a day when counts are between 10 and 20,000 and rising to 1.9% per day uh, when the counts are less than 10,000. Patients who have chronic autoimmune thrombocytopenia could tolerate platelet counts 3 to 5 to 10,000 range for years uh, without significant problems. One should order single donor platelet phoresis products when giving uh, patient platelets. Although not always available, uh, use of the single donor platelet phoresis will expose the patient to one donor instead of six to eight. So a typical non-single donor platelet phoresis, the patient is being exposed to six patients, six patients who may have a potential viral illnesses and six patients who may have HLA antigens complicating the infusion. In patients who are exposed to have expected to have multiple transfusions, such as patients with leukemia, uh, it may be considered uh, to give the uh, a product through a leukodepletion filter to reduce the uh, 
risk of alloimmunization. And I would say this is certainly true in any burn patient. If you're looking at a critically injured burn patient who has, you know, maybe a, a 60 or 70 percent burn over the course of their injury, their recovery, and their reconstruction, you're looking at somebody who could easily have maybe 30 units of blood because of the bloody nature of burn surgery. So again, trying to keep people as single donor as possible, uh, you're going to reduce that risk of alloimmunization. Platelets are not indicated for stable thrombocytopenic patients with platelet counts between 5 and 10,000. Let's discuss this idea of platelet alloimmunization a little bit more in depth. Patients exposed to cells with different HLA types will develop antibodies to those different HLA types. This is something we learn in medical school. This is basic um, uh, immunology that by infusing uh, platelets or a blood product that has a, a foreign antigen. Uh, it's like immuniza- immunizing the patient. The uh, body processes that foreign antigen and develops memory to that foreign antigen. Now, this is common in patients who receive previous transfusions of blood that are not leukodepleted or patients who have been pregnant. And you can certainly understand why patients who have been leukodepleted because the white cells are very rich in HLA antigens. Platelets carry a class 1 HLA antigen. And if you transfuse somebody who has a foreign HLA, a class 1 HLA antigen and they've been previously immunized because of they received previous blood products or because of uh, um, previous pregnancy, they'll rapidly destroy those platelets. The importance of discussing the uh, whole topic of alloimmunization really centers on two concepts. One is recognition and two is avoidance. Patients with HLA antibodies will often fail to have incremental increase of their platelet counts with transfusions, and this is why we do that 15-minute count. So if a patient does not have an increase in their count 15 minutes after the transfusion, they may have HLA antibodies. One can test for the anti-HLA antibodies because some patients instead have specific anti-platelet antibodies that will not respond HLA-matched platelets. Okay? So let me restate that. You can actually have antibodies to the platelets that are attacking the platelet itself, not the class 1 HLA antigen that the patient that, that particular platelet has. So therefore, even if you use matched platelets, you're still going to see the recipient's body attacking the platelets. Now, trials have shown that giving patients leukodepleted blood products will reduce the incidence of alloimmunization. So patients who are not HLA alloimmunized should receive only leukodepleted products. What this is saying is if their immune system is essentially virginal, they haven't, been seen, they haven't seen all these uh, foreign antigens, let's keep them that way. Let's keep them essentially naive uh, uh, by uh, giving them leukopore uh, products. And this is easy enough to do. We should certainly strive to maintain that, um, for lack of a better descriptor, that naive or virginal immune stat. Well, what do we do with the bleeding patient who has a refractory platelet count? This represents a really difficult problem. If patients do have HLA antibodies, one can try to transfuse HLA-matched platelets, but unfortunately, platelet transfusions are ineffective in about 20 to 70% of these patients. If a patient is totally refractory to platelet transfusions, one certainly needs to consider uh, the uh, uh, various uh, drugs as an etiology to antiplatelet antibodies. And one especially is used so widely anymore in virtually any patient, just not intensive care unit patients, intensive ankylosing.
use of uh, some antifibrinolytic agents such as uh, epsilon aminocaproic acid may decrease the incidence of bleeding. Platelet drips consisting of infusions, either uh, a platelet concentrate uh, per one per hour or platelet phoresis unit one every six hours may be given as a continuous infusion. In life-threatening situations where uh, the patient appears to be platelet refractory, certainly that's a consideration, one of the real few considerations for using uh, recombinant factor set. Another blood product that really gets kind of abused a lot is FFP, or fresh frozen plasma. Uh, FFP is derived from one unit of a donated whole blood. It has an average volume of roughly 225 milliliters. One unit of uh, fresh frozen plasma can raise your coagulation factors um, uh, a level by 5 to 8 percent, and it can increase your fibrinogen level by 13 milligrams per deciliter uh, in the average patient. It takes about 30 minutes to thaw. A, a unit of FFP. FFP should only be used when there's a documented coagulation defect that can be corrected um, by a reasonable amount of uh, FFP. And the key word there is reasonable amount. And it is useful uh, for the patient who is um, uh, overdosed with Coumadin and is bleeding or needs immediate surgery. I would tell you that many people who do uh, trauma surgery would also say that a patient comes in and they're anticoagulated uh, on Coumadin and it looks like they have any kind of, of head injury, they really start FFP almost immediately. Uh, DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation with bleeding is another indication for the use of FFP. Uh, FFP is used along with plasma exchange in uh, patients who have thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura or TTP. Uh, FFP may be useful in the bleeding patient with liver disease and documented coagulation defects, although mo- most bleeding in this group of patients is due to mechanical reasons, particularly something like a bleeding varice. Uh, patients with FFP contains, um, excuse me, FFP actually contains things like protein C, protein S, antithrombin 3, and therefore it's used in these patients uh, anticoagulation factors for uh, patients who are deficient undergoing surgery. Uh, it's kind of a neat question, and I remember being asked uh, that people who have an antithrombin 3 deficiency, uh, and remember, keep in mind, heparin works through antithrombin 3, and if you're trying to anticoagulate somebody and they have no antithrombin 3, you can't really anticoagulate them. And um, sometimes, well, not sometimes, but an FFP infusion will then provide the uh, enough antithrombin 3 to allow anticoagulation to be functional. FFP is not indicated for most of the purposes in which we actually use it. It's often used as kind of the super glue or quick fix for anybody who has any kind of general coagulopathy, regardless of uh, whether the coagulopathy needs to be corrected or what the etiology of the coagulopathy is. This is an incredible waste of blood product, and it really exposes the patient unnecessarily to uh, viral uh, disease. Uh, one example of this is a stable patient with end-stage liver disease with a coagulopathy. Assuming that his factor 7 level is roughly 25% normal, it would take about 6 units of FFP, uh, which is roughly 1.2 liters of plasma, to raise that factor 7 level to 75%. Now, the half-life of factor 7 is about 7 hours. So that's pretty convenient, factor 7, 7 hours. So to keep his factor 7 level above 50% would require 6 units of FFP every 6 hours, or roughly 5 liters of plasma a day. Now, to keep his factor 7 levels above 100% would require 18 units of FFP every 6 hours, which translates into 15 liters of plasma a day. Most people would feel that a PT lower than uh, an INR of 2 is, is safe for surgery and procedures, assuming there's no other coagulation defect. 
uh, when we're trying to get people ready for surgery. But again, you know, trying to correct somebody's coagulopathy from liver disease uh, in preparation for surgery just may not be the way to go. Now, cryoprecipitate is another blood product I see used inappropriately uh, by a lot of individuals, and, and you'll see people get several units of cryoprecipitate, and the next question I'll typically ask somebody is, well, what was their fibrinogen level? And they can't tell you. Um, and you know, typically the you, the indication for this. And well, let's talk about this. What is cryoprecipitate? Well, cryo is, is uh, one unit of fresh frozen plasma that's thawed down to four degrees. The precipitate is then resuspended in, in ten cc's of saline um, or FFP and refrozen for storage. So you're basically concentrating uh, the factor. And one unit contains at least 150 milligrams of fibrinogen and 80 units of factor 8, along with some von Willebrand factor. Now, cryo, again, takes about 20 minutes to thaw, so when you ask it, they're just not going to pull it on the, the shelf and give it to you. Now, cryoprecipitate is useful to quickly ri- uh, increase the fibrinogen level in patients with DIC or massive tr- transfusion with hemodilution. It is the third the third line of therapy for treatment of type 1 von Willebrand's disease and the second line of therapy in patients with other types of von Willebrand disease. So if somebody's got von Willebrand's disease, this is not the first thing you reach for. If you're asking me what the first thing you reach for is and then you're saying, okay, what what do we give? I would say, well, in that case, probably the first thing you want to reach for is a telephone because if you're not sure what the first line of therapy is for von Willebrand's disease and somebody is perhaps having a, a bleeding problem, you might want to consult or confer with your hematologist. Currently, though, uh, Humate P is the preferred replacement product for von Willebrand's disease. Cryoprecipitate can be used as a source for factor 8 for hemophiliacs, but the preferred product for these patients is the super pure factor, factor 8 concentrates. Um, and a lot of institutions will typically require that, you're, that these are ordered by a hematologist. Cryoprecipitate can be used to shorten the bleeding time uh, also in uremic patients. People who have an elevated BUN, their platelets don't nearly work as well as they can, and this is one of the strategies we can can do. So if somebody's got a platelet count of 100,000 and they've got a BUN of 100, uh, that uremia is going to make the platelets not work as well as they should. So what I would say is they have a functional thrombocytopenia that uh, if they've got 100,000 platelets, maybe only 50,000 of them are actually working. Complications of transfusions. This seems to be uh, something that we should all know something, or at least quite a bit about. And I think what happens is we get kind of... Um, um, cavalier in our use of blood products. We're not ordering IV fluids here. And uh, If you've heard some of my other talks, you know that even an IV, you know, giving somebody IV, IV fluids is not something I take for granted because certainly giving people fluids has its known complications. So blood products particularly have some very serious complications. Probably the most feared uh, is that of the hemolytic transfusion reaction. It really comes in uh, two varieties, the, the immediate and the delayed. The immediate transfusion reaction, patients will have fevers, hypotension, back pain, oliguria. You can see they uh, start, start getting pigment in their urine. In severe cases, patients will have DIC. Um, most often, this is caused by a ABO incompatibility, and it used to be a, a classic question to say, well, what was the most common cause of an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction? And the, the most common cause was defined as, as clerical error. Somebody uh, misread a label, misread a name, and the patient got basically blood that was not cross-matched properly.
And this is the most common cause of death related transfusions. Now, the delayed common, the delayed transfusion reaction, um, is really you see a lack of expected rise of the hematocrit. Patient will have fevers. You'll have a Coombe positive hemolytic anemia and jaundice. And if you're, if you're giving somebody blood after transfusion, you can, they're going to be Coombe's positive, which is the, the hemolytic uh, anemia is the other element of this. Uh, reactions are caused by recipient antibodies attacking the donated red blood cells. This results in a release of the hemoglobin and the red blood cell uh, membrane antigen complexes. Now, when you have free hemoglobin, that is nephrotoxic. Uh, it results in precipitation in the renal tubules, so you need to kind of keep those people flushed, trying to maintain the urine output greater than an hour, that greater than 100 an hour. Obviously, there's somebody you're thinking having a transfusion reaction. Stop the transfusion. Take the blood down. Hospitals will have a uh, transfusion reaction protocol where you'll recross match the patient, draw blood from the patient, take uh, the the blood that you draw from the patient, and setting it back down to the blood bank where they'll try to recross match the patient. Now, febrile febrile reactions again are probably um, the most common thing we see when we transfuse patients. This is most often due to the presence of white cell debris and cytokines in the donated blood. Patients who have had a febrile reaction uh, should get future transfusions either with um, blood derived from uh, you know, leuk pore filters or blood that's a leuko depleted at the blood center. And basically, it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, white blood cells are rich in HLA antigens, and whenever we can remove the white blood cells, we're going to perhaps make the... Um, the transfusion of blood products a little bit less eventful. Because transfusion reactions present with a similar clinical picture, uh, again with the febrile reactions, all patients with fever during a transfusion really need a transfusion reaction workup. Transfusion-related acute lung injury, I've recently seen an article on this where they're considering this to be perhaps one of the most common complications uh, of uh, transfusions. Um, and this is a non-cardiac pulmonary edema. The typical picture is that of hypoxia, fever, bilateral infiltrates, and hypotension uh, developing two to four hours after blood is given. I've certainly seen uh, many cases uh, of a, a transfusion-related acute lung injury. You may hear it be called uh, trolley, uh, and that's just a T-R-A-L-I. Uh, ventilator supports often required. Recovery is usually rapid and typically complete, but some of these patients could have a really severe case of ARDS. It's felt to be a form of ARDS caused by the presence of these HLA antibodies in the donor serum, leading to destruction of host granulocyte uh, and activation of the complement system, leading to basically an upregulation of the inflammatory cascade, leading to the lung injury. Another uh, complication of transfusions is the transfusion-related graft-versus-host disease. Uh, this uh, is rare, but it is deadly. It occurs typically when donor uh, lymphocytes attack the blood um, recipient. It's, um, so you've got lymphocytes in the transfused blood, and those lymphocytes then begin to attack the, the person receiving the blood. It's very rare in normal blood recipients unless the donor and the recipient share an HLA haplotype. Uh, this transfusion-related graft-versus-host disease is reported in blood recipients with immune suppression, mainly patients with Hodgkin's disease and leukemia. Strangely enough, this does not occur in individuals who have AIDS. The symptoms include erythematous rash that may progress to epidermal, uh, we call toxic epidermal necrolysis, which in the burn unit we actually see quite a bit. Uh, we actually had a patient a few months ago who uh, we were consulted with uh, the hematologist who had this transfusion-related graft-versus-host disease, and it was horrible, and it was very tragic. 
Uh, also, uh, it can be seen, you can see liver dysfunction and pancytopenia. Uh, Transfusion-related graft-versus-host disease is prevented by using radiated blood products uh, to patients who are at risk with um, um, and, and it goes, we could talk about how they radiate the blood, but um, directed blood donation from all pa- blood relatives should also be rated as well. So we see this a lot in orthopedics. Uh, people um, um, can um, um, do what's called directed donor, have your family donate the blood because uh, you're having your hip replaced. I did this with my son, my youngest son. When he was four months of age, he had some pretty significant uh, cranial and neurosurgery that was done and I did uh, some directed donor uh, blood for him and then as a relative we should radiate his blood. The interesting thing is that transfusion related graft versus host disease cannot be prevented by the use of lukewarm blood. The irradiation of blood is performed for only one reason and that's to prevent this transfusion related graft versus host disease. Patients with HIV infection do not get trans, uh, transfusion-related graft-versus-host disease, and therefore they don't need irradiated blood. Now, we talked about lukewarm blood. What is that? Well, that's the, we talked about the white blood cells containing um, blood products that may have adverse effects. We talked about febrile transfusion uh, reactions, uh, inducing HLA, alloimmunizations, immunosuppression, disease transmission, and graft-versus-host disease. Reducing the white blood cells can reduce the incidence of these complications, with the exception, again, of the transfusion graft versus host disease. Uh, currently, white blood cells are removed by infusion through filters that trap the white cells. This can be done at the bedside at the point of transfusion in the blood bank or when they actually accept the blood from the donor. Currently, the indications for leukodepleted or leukpoor blood are uh, the prevention of febrile transfusion reactions in patients with a previous documented uh, reaction. Um, next would be prevention of HLA analog immunization. Um, and it's ineffective if patients receive one or more blood products not leukodepleted or the patient's already HLA immunized. And certainly uh, in the prevention of CMV infection, which is really important when you're talking about uh, immunosuppressed patients or transplant patients. Now, what are some of the infectious complications related to transfusions? Perhaps the one that most patients are uh, probably the most terrified of is uh, HIV. Now, with better screening, the risk of transmitting uh, HIV is about 1 in 2 million. However, worldwide, this is much more frequent uh, due to the lack of donor screening. Hepatitis is the classic transfusion-related disease. Um, since the introduction of a diagnostic test for hep C, the estimated risk is uh, less than one in a million. Surprisingly, the most common hepatitis transmitted by blood is hepatitis B uh, due to the low titer of a highly infectious viruses early on in the infection. Other infections you can get through transfusions uh, include things like syphilis and malaria. At the start of the West Nile virus epidemic, there was a cluster of transfusion uh, transmitted cases, but this has uh, subsequently disappeared uh, with the development of a uh, uh, test assaying for uh, West Nile virus in the um, uh, blood. Another problem uh, with uh, infections that can be transmitted through transfusion is uh, cytomegalovirus, or CMV, and uh, approximately 50% of the population has evidence of prior infection with CMV. Uh, After infection, CMV remains latent in the white blood cells, or the leukocytes, and transfusion of these cells from a previously infected donor can cause infection in the recipient. Now, 
So we have a patient, um, they are CMV positive, that CMV virus becomes latent in the white blood cells. You, trans, you transfuse uh, blood and white cells to a CMV recipient and then for, therefore you risk making that patient CMV positive. However, only about 1-5% to 5% of products that are positive for CMV can actually transmit CMV. CMV infection is usually asymptomatic or it may cause mild flu-like illness, but in immunocompromised patients, it can cause severe illnesses, including pneumonia, hepatitis, and bone marrow suppression. Um, a woman I used to work with actually lost her life following a kidney pancreas transplant when she acquired CMV. Uh, therefore, immunocompromised patients, uh, such as premature infants, transplant recipients, uh, patients who have congenital immunodeficiencies or AIDS, should receive blood uh, at low risk for transmitting uh, CMV. Now, the entire topic of massive transfusions um, can really be uh, an entire uh, discussion all in itself. And unless you're working uh, uh, with uh, patients who have a GI bleed or trauma patients, you're probably not going to have the opportunity to, to experience the fun of giving patients massive transfusions. And what really defines massive transfusion is really when we're talking about people who are requiring um, uh, a whole body uh, or a blood volume uh, transfusion in a period of 24 hours. And quite frankly, I, we're really talking about you know, patients who can get a whole body transfusion in the period of one to two hours. And, and that's typically a massive GI bleed, a cirrhotic who's bleeding from an esophageal varicity, or uh, something like a gunshot wound. There are really five tests that we can measure, you know, the matocrit, the platelet count, the PT, uh, PTT, and, and uh, fibrinogen level. Um, uh, perhaps a, even a, a better test, the assay, uh, uh, the development of a, a coagulopathy in these patients is use of a thromboelastogram, which is really a bedside test that gives you a graphical output of not only the development of the clot, but the actual intrinsic uh, uh, initiation of fibrinolysis. Uh, this is a very helpful test. Uh, and those people who um, they are frequently used in, in transplant situations uh, by anesthesiologists and people who learn to get um, pretty savvy with this uh, uh, test uh, really learn to rely on it very heavily. When you have somebody who's massively uh, bleeding and you're trying to transfuse them, you really get into what point do I start giving them blood. And hematocrit, you have to keep in mind, is a concentration. And using hematocrit as a, um, a marker of uh, volume status will really get you uh, led down the wrong path. If you keep in mind that if I took a person and took them and measured their hematocrit, and their hematocrit was say 35, and then I, for some reason, I phlebotomized that patient or I shot that patient and they're, they're, they lost half their blood volume on the street immediately. And we stopped the bleeding and we took another hemoglobin hematocrit. Well, what would their hemoglobin hematocrit would be? Their hematocrit would be unchanged. But what would their blood volume would be? Their blood volume would be the same. Well, why is that? Well, if you think of a, 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 a bottle of Pepsi, and that bottle of Pepsi or Coke has a certain concentration of Coke or Pepsi. And then I empty out half the bottle. Well, is the bottle half empty? Yes. Is the concentration of the sugar or whatever I want to measure in there changed? Well, the answer is no. Well, the concentration will drop as I add fluid to it. So if I take our patient who I've shot or we've phlebotomized and they lose a large portion of their blood volume and we let them sit there or we transport them, and then we draw their hemoglobin and hematocrit. What is it? Well, it's dropped. Why is it dropped? Well, it's dropped because they move fluids from the interstitial space into their intravascular space. Tom Shires back in the 60s did a, some landmark studies looking at dogs who uh, were 
bled into shock. And they found at that point that when we um, bleed somebody into a state of hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock, that they did better when we administered not only the shed blood volume, but also crystalloid. And the idea is that when you're resuscitating a patient from uh, hemorrhagic shock, you're not only trying to increase the fluid in the intravascular space, but you're also resuscitating the interstitial space in the intracellular space. So when a patient loses a significant amount of blood volume and they're not volume resuscitated, the body will actually try to auto-resuscitate itself by moving fluid from the intracellular and the interstitial space into the intravascular space. One thing you have to keep in mind that if you're doing uh, massive transfusion, a lot of hospitals have initiated massive transfusion protocols. And the reason why this is developed is because it's very easy to just keep in mind that I'm losing blood and keep people keep people ordering uh, packed red blood cells. But from what we've already talked about, Packed red blood cells uh, is not uh, rich in things that make your blood clot, uh, namely things like plasma and platelets. So um, in those situations where you've got massive transfusion protocols in place, um, these can vary. It can vary where you're using whole blood. And again, as I've said, uh, uh, there's been some excellent presentations at the American College of Surgeons meeting last year by uh, some of the trauma centers in the United States, as well as the U.S. military experience by using uh, whole blood in the cases of um, uh, massive uh, transfusions. Uh, people will do a one-to-one-to-one type protocol, which uh, for every unit of packed blood cells, you're administering a unit of platelets and you're administering a unit of FFP. And basically what you're doing is you're administering whole blood. Because remember what we talked about is that when we break apart the blood, we're taking each unit of whole blood has one unit of platelets, one unit of plasma, and one unit of packed red blood cells. So by using a one-to-one-to-one strategy, you're basically physiologically administering a, a whole unit of blood. Um, the um, uh, third type of protocol that you may see is that they'll use thresholds, and for a threshold of so many units of packed red blood cells, that once you've hit that threshold, say, of six units of cells, then somebody will start administering platelets and FFP. The key thing to keep in mind is that make sure you're not in a situation where you find your, that your patient's been given eight or ten units of uh, red blood cells and nobody's given platelets and nobody's given uh, FFP. That's just not acceptable, uh, and, and we can certainly do that better. Um, I hope you've learned a little bit from this talk on uh, blood component therapy. It's by no means meant to be exhaustive. There's a lot more that we can talk about. I have done a previously uh, done a podcast on what are some our, our thresholds for uh, providing uh, blood transfusions, particularly in the setting of the ICU. Uh, if you have uh, questions about that, I would refer you to that podcast. Once again, my name is Jeff Guy um, from Vanderbilt University. My uh, website um, is can be found at www.burndoc.com. We do have some articles there and, and links to other types of things that we do, and you can certainly get a hold of me and email me through the, uh, that web portal. Those of you who are sending me, uh, sending me email, giving me feedback, I do appreciate that. It's nice to hear that um, people um, appreciate the podcast and, and find them useful. My name is Jeff Guy. Have a good night.